Get informed, get inspired, and get connected. CannabisRadio.com presents NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. The National Cannabis Industry Association is the only national trade organization representing the businesses of the legal cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice covers a range of topics, including the rapidly evolving political and policy changes that affect our industry, news and events of importance to cannabis professionals, and features on companies, individuals, and campaigns at the cutting edge of the cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice begins now. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore, and I'm the Communications Manager at the National Cannabis Industry Association. Today, my guest is Blake Mensing. He's the founder and chief counsel of the Mensing Group and counsel to Hoban Law Group, both of which are NCIA members. Blake brings a no-nonsense approach to cannabis law in Massachusetts. I like the sound of that. The Mensing Group is the first and only homegrown legal and business advisory firm solely dedicated to cannabis in Massachusetts. In his capacity as associate town counsel for seven towns throughout the Commonwealth, Blake has written and edited zoning and general bylaws, advised boards of selectmen on medical marijuana dispensary regulation by the Department of Public Health, worked with planning boards and zoning boards of appeal, and represented municipalities before the Massachusetts courts and administrative regulatory agencies. You are very busy up there in Massachusetts, Blake. Welcome to the show. Thank you kindly. Pleasure to be here. For sure. Uh, So you're real busy up there, as I mentioned, but let's get to know you a little bit by Heading back into the past, before you started doing all this fun cannabis work, uh, what's what's your background and experience? Um, sure. Where you come from? So I am a native uh, mass hole, as we say. I don't know if you're allowed to say that on the radio, but there you go. I did. Uh, so I have been uh, a lawyer for just about ten years, uh, and I've been a stoner for twenty three. Um, so I. You know, I think I came to the profession uh, of a cannabis attorney a little bit embarrassingly late. Um, and, and I'm embarrassed because I didn't connect those dots. You know, I loved weed before I loved the law. I don't know why I didn't put two and two together earlier. Um, but as luck would have it, I, I sort of had a perfect storm of legal experiences uh, to be of utility to clients now. Um, so I've done transactional real estate to the tune of 450 closings. Um, and of course, property is the uh, first step in any cannabis uh, operation. So that's been helpful. Uh, I did consumer protection litigation, um, have beaten every big bank out there, um, which I guess I only bring up to say I'm not I'm not afraid of, uh, you know, $1,200 an hour lawyers. They're, you know, it doesn't matter how much they charge. It matters the strength of your argument. Um, so that gave me some confidence to say, okay, I can go to toe-to-toe with, with any lawyer. Um, and then, as you alluded to, you know, I was a municipal attorney uh, as associate town counsel. So that, you know, showed me how the sausage was made at town hall in all its ugliness and sometimes uh, randomness. Um, and then, yeah, my my academic background was just regulatorily focused. So I have an advanced law degree on environmental law, and I came from a universe of thousands and thousands of pages of regulations across you know, state, local, and federal agencies with various uh, jurisdictional hooks, uh, down to one administrative agency in the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission, and about 200 pages of regulations. And so I just said, 
hey, these are brand new regulations. No one's an expert. And I've been specifically trained to parse through regulatory and administrative law matters. Um, and then, uh, you know, sitting in a windowless office as a municipal attorney, not getting to talk to clients, I said, I don't like this. Um, and, you know, the, the myth out there is that all lawyers make a lot of money. I can assure you that was not the case uh, working for a small private firm or any of the firms I worked for. Um, so anyway, I now get to be myself at work, uh, the same person I am at home, and it's been just the best move ever. And, and I think cannabis law is my calling. I am certain I will never practice any other area of law because frankly, they're boring and I don't want to. <laughs> Fair. Sounds like you're a little bit of an extrovert there and you don't like being uh, behind a desk with towers of paperwork. You want to be out there with the people where the people are. Absolutely. Gotcha. Um, so how did you make that shift into cannabis law and getting entrenched in the cannabis industry? You've already, all, you've already indicated you're a personal fan of the plant, as many of us are, um, and that there was this moment where you you know, took the left hand and the right hand and said, aha, I'm putting them together. How did all that happen? Sure. So back in that windowless office, I was sitting there miserable uh, for not very much money. Um, and really what prompted me um, initially to leave that job uh, was the you know onset of the adult use industry here in Massachusetts. So my first thought was, I hate being a lawyer. I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Let me try to get my own license. Um, so about three months before I quit the job, uh, I had been doing some research um, and was looking into pursuing a micro business license here in Massachusetts, uh, which is exactly as the name implies. It's it's a slightly smaller, uh, you know, entry ticket to get your hat in that ring. Um, I just I did the research and, and found even though it's a lower barrier of entry than say a you know a tier 11, 100,000 square foot canopy grow, it still requires you know more zeros than I had in my bank account. Um, so, you know, obviously I think any entrepreneurial endeavor should be, you know, grounded in talking to the people who are already in that industry. Um, so I had been networking in Massachusetts cannabis for a total of about six months before I did put in my notice. Um, and you know, again, my initial intent was to get a license. I quit my job before I did the math all the way to find out that I couldn't afford it on my own. Um, but through the networking, people just started saying, hey, why aren't you a cannabis attorney? And my answer, you know, initially was, well, because being an attorney is awful and I don't like it. But what I realized is it, it wasn't so much the law that I didn't like. It was it was not being listened to by my bosses. Uh, you know, that's a, a tale as old as time. But mm -hmm. in my opinion, if, if you're a lawyer, you know, my law license is the same as, you know, my boss who had 40 years of experience. And, you know, yeah, he had expertise in certain areas, but... The, the, the main thing that left me uh, to the inevitable conclusion that I couldn't work there anymore is they gave me a research assignment and I found the answer, not, you know, arguably an answer, but the answer backed up by four decades of Supreme Court precedent. And they said, oh, the client's not going to want to hear that. And that's mm -hmm. not at all what a lawyer's job is. We're not yes men or yes women. We, we tell the client what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. So I said, all right, you're not paying me much. You're not letting me talk to people. Uh, you don't listen to my legal opinions. What am I doing here? So I had the flexibility, you know, my, my wife, uh, you know, works full time, has great health insurance. And I said, all right, let me put on my entrepreneurial hat and try this. Um, so 
you know, it was actually at a trade show uh, that someone came up to me that I knew from, from networking and they just said, you, you should be a cannabis attorney. So I started seriously considering it. And what led me to, to, you know, print business cards that said cannabis attorney and then walk around at a convention and make them true uh, was, was a session at one of the conventions where they emphasized, and these were, you know, quote unquote experts in, in cannabis law in Massachusetts. Um, and they said the, the, the first hurdle is the municipal process. So, that's what I knew best. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm genuinely a stoner first and a lawyer second. So I just thought this sounds like it was meant for me and it has. Wow. Been. That's great. Awesome. Found your, your calling. That's, that's excellent. Uh, so here you are, you're a member of NCIA with two companies, the Mensing Group and Hoban Law Group as well. Uh, tell me what's going on with your, your day-to-day. What kind of projects are you working on? What's going on at those companies? Sure. So what I've been doing the last couple of weeks um, is probably a little bit different, definitely, than I expected uh, and probably a little different than sort of other nine-to-fivers. Um, I've been writing a lot of correspondence to municipalities explaining that, in fact, the coronavirus is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for them to not do any work. Um, that has been shoved down my clients' throats quite a bit. Oh, we can't talk to you because of all this other stuff. Um, and what I do, uh, like any good lawyer, is I lay it out legally and logically. So in Massachusetts, you know, the governor issued an order similar to, to many other states, and, you know, there are different buckets. So you're, if you're an essential business, you know, think uh, healthcare workers, obviously, fire, police, that sort of thing, you get to stay open. If you're non-essential, you don't. So Massachusetts municipalities have been attempting to say that they're so busy with coronavirus stuff that they can't possibly talk or function day to day like they normally would, except for the fact that the Massachusetts governor uh, issued a second executive order that explicitly exempted uh, municipalities from some of the open meeting law requirements. Uh, That's exactly as its name implies. A public body has to have public meetings to, you know, get sunlight onto matters that they're deciding upon. So his order basically says you can do it digitally like everyone else is doing, um, you know, through Zoom or GoToMeeting or one of those other platforms. So they can't hide behind the fact that you can't come to town hall because there's a ready-made runway to doing it in a way that complies under the executive order. So I've been doing a lot of that. Um, The other thing uh, about three weeks ago, I spent uh, almost the entire week going down a rabbit hole of what's known as a force majeure clause. Uh, and what that clause does is it's and it's an escape hatch. It's it's essentially a nod to if things happen that are so outside of our control and, and outside of the realm of sort of normalcy, then there are mechanisms in place to not hold everyone to every little thing in a contract. So typically a force majeure would be uh, earthquake, hurricane, act of war, act of God, things that are just that happen. Um, and so obviously what I was researching was is a pandemic definitionally appropriate under that clause. Um, so that got right. very nerdy very fast. <laughs> but, um, you know, the ultimate resolution is the contracts that had those clauses weren't drafted specifically with this pandemic in mind. So there are a lot of contracts being renegotiated. There's going to be a lot of litigation when someone says, hey, you didn't meet your performance metric, your, your time-based milestone. And the reality is everything is slower because things are shut down as they should be. 
Absolutely. Ah, the old act of God clause. Yes. <laughs> Get shut every time. That's right. All right, we're going to take a, a quick commercial break here, and then we'll be back to, to nerd out with Blake Mensing. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. The cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. The The Green Green Peak Peak with Richard Zwicky. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore, with the National Cannabis Industry Association. And we're chatting with Blake Mensing out of Massachusetts, talking all kinds of cannabis law. So let's uh, start with what we can't seem to avoid talking about these days, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's talk about your home state, Massachusetts, specifically where... Uh, The industry and consumers were highly disappointed to learn that the governor did not deem adult use cannabis businesses as essential, which is a big boo-hoo. So unlike so many other states like California and thankfully Colorado, where I live, who did, uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Uh, People are mad. Uh, I I am mad based on the flimsiness of the logic that the governor here applied. Um, So going back to the ballot question that, you know, led to adult use legalization, you know, the the question itself was entitled, you know, an act to, to regulate cannabis like alcohol. So alcohol has been deemed an essential industry here. And, and the rationale there is, is legit. You know, if you shut liquor stores, um, unfortunately, the people who are alcoholics, and if you cut off their supply, they, they could actually die from it. Um, sure. So that's the rationale for keeping that as an essential business. That doesn't apply, which everyone who knows anything about cannabis knows that it can't kill you because it works differently in the body than alcohol. But because of that, because people who rely on cannabis for any number of things, whether they want to do it for fun, helping them sleep, you know, increasing their appetite or, yeah, or eating, that sort of thing. (laughs) So if, if it could kill you, if you stopped using it, that means adult use would have been open. 
So that's the logic there. And then his other thread was uh, because Massachusetts is the only game on the East Coast in adult use, he says that there would be flocks of people from out of state coming to purchase at our adult use stores. The simple solution to that is, of course, don't let people buy or into the store if they don't have a Massachusetts license. Mm-hmm. Now, as a as a legal nerd and a weed nerd, his next response to that made me really, really laugh. So he raised a United States constitutional law claim based on uh, commerce clause stuff, which is, is too legally nerdy to get all the way into. But long story short, he said someone from out of state who was denied entry would sue the state of Massachusetts because they weren't allowed to buy weed, ignoring the fact that a federal judge would, of course, say, yeah, none of that's legal. What, what do you mean? What's your cause of action? You don't have a right to buy cannabis under the Constitution. Um, Weird. So that was that was how he backed himself into that. Um, and ultimately, there was a lawsuit uh, against the governor. Uh, it was five dispensaries and a disabled Iraq war vet um, who, you know, correctly stated there's plenty of people who rely on VA benefits who don't go through the trouble of getting a medical card because they don't want to be on a list. They don't want to have their federal benefits jeopardized by, you know, admitting in writing that they <laughs> consume cannabis. So ultimately, the court said, um, you know, that was a permissible action by the governor because he he didn't have to do an analysis to provide the least restrictive means, but the judge who, who ruled that way did cue up that there was a clearly obvious solution to just carding people at the front, something the industry has to do anyway. Truly, yes. Yeah, the illicit market doesn't check your license. <laughs> That's right. Right. So when I caught up with you last month, you were waiting to hear about a specific court ruling in the city of Cambridge, I think about an equity ordinance, uh, and you were expecting that sometime in April. So what happened? What was that all about? Absolutely. So uh, what Cambridge's city council did uh, was admirable, in my opinion. They took steps to put some legs behind the state's economic empowerment and social equity programs. Um, So Massachusetts was the first state in the country to, by law, uh, you know, do an official mea culpa and say, hey, we super disproportionately enforced against people of color uh, and weaponized the drug laws to hurt whole communities. So by statute, there are a couple of categories, economic empowerment, social equity, where if you demonstrate certain things, including uh, you know, your, your ethnicity, your demographics, um, whether or not you lived in a certain area where the statistics showed, you're getting arrested and convicted in much greater rates than you know, baseline numbers should, should warrant. Um, and the state created programs where people with those criteria get extra advantages. So economic empowerment, you get reviewed faster, you get a bunch of fees waived. Social equity um, shares not quite the same speed of review, but you know access to certain license categories that will have an exclusivity period. Um, so what Cambridge did is they attempted to create an exclusivity period for the ability to even apply um, and limiting that to people with an economic empowerment certificate or a social equity. Um, so there's an existing medical dispensary in Cambridge called Revolutionary Clinics. Uh, they have two locations, both again medical, Uh, And they brought suit because, of course, their plan, like many medical uh, operators, was to co-locate adult use. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that ordinance would not have let them apply. 
So their legal argument, I thought was a winning one because there is a state statute that says a medical uh, cannabis operator can't be prohibited from converting to adult use. Um, the rub, I think the, the legal wiggle room that got them to the victory um, or, or, or the initial victory was uh, that it wasn't a zoning bylaw that changed it. Um, so revolutionary clinics, you know, got an injunction, the city of Cambridge appealed it. And what the appellate court judge said was, look, the commission is the gatekeeper of who gets licensed or not. And what the city of Cambridge did isn't preventing you from getting your license. It's just delaying it. So it's a little bit squishy. Uh, I was surprised mm. that it came that way, but frankly, I've never been happier to be wrong because it does mean now that there is a two-year exclusivity period um, for economic empowerment and social equity people, which is uh, the right thing to do legally and morally. Yeah, absolutely. And Massachusetts was also a leader in including regulatory language for social justice and reform for industry. They had earmarks for licensing in communities most impacted. And you're on the ground there in Massachusetts. So how is that being implemented and rolled out? And is it working? And, you know, there's still work to be done there, I'm sure. What are your thoughts around it? There is undoubtedly work to be done. Um, so the statutory language, the regulatory language, you know, is great on its face. Um, it says the right things. It's, I think, you know, the drafters' hearts were in the right place. If you look at the data of how effective those policies have been, it's an abject failure. Um, and I think the reason for that is the state mandate, you know, the, the marching orders to the commission are undo some of the wrongs of the failed drug war. Where that has broken down is none of that force of law does a damn bit of good when you're in a town hall. Towns aren't obligated to do anything like the city of Cambridge has done and given, you know, give you some extra credit for being in one of those buckets. Um, and unfortunately, what happens when you're talking to a town, they equate time in the industry automatically with, you know, being a responsible operator or having the right tools to succeed. And they completely discount people who have, you know, the imprimatur of the state carried with them in an economic empowerment or social equity certificate. So you get zero credit for having that at the local level. And you can't even apply to the state for a license to then benefit from that faster review or any of the other exclusive license uh, types that are only allowed for those, those holders. Uh, you can't get your hat in the ring. So until there's some mandate on the towns to actually acknowledge that EE and SE are things worthy of propping up, I think it's going to be more of the same. Uh, the other thing that I think that has really hamstrung the economic empowerment program in particular, um, it, twofold. One, it was a two-week window to apply for that designation. That was in April of 2018. The commission was brand new and they spent exactly zero dollars advertising that program which is why there's only 123 people in the entire state of 7 million that have that certificate. So that was billed as the, you know, the major way to lower barriers of entry and get people in the door. Um, right. I helped a gentleman get an economic empowerment certificate and I've had probably 40 meetings with him trying to get funded. Originally that EE said you must own, the EE holder must hold the majority of ownership. Actually, this week, the commission uh, unilaterally issued a letter to EE and SEs and said, oh, by the way, 
you can hold 10% or more and still get reviewed faster. You just need to own a majority if you want to have access to those exclusive uh, license types like social consumption and direct-to-consumer delivery, which is not right and will further undercut those programs. Absolutely. I was talking a bit with Margot Bruner when uh, I was at the uh, our Northeast Cannabis Business Conference in Boston in February, back when we had conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Margot Bruner was talking a bit about that as well. Um, interesting. She's with Perpetual Harvest. All right, let's take our last commercial break and then we'll be right back to wrap up our chat with Blake Mensing. Stay tuned. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Fetch your earbuds and stay tuned for some pure pet care conversation. Hi, it's Angela Ardolino with It's a Dog's Life, and I have Hernanda Umana joining me. We're just both so fascinated with how much we've learned since we've been in this pet industry and creating an all-natural product. Because it's a dog's life. I am a huge fan of my guest today, Dr. Bob Goldstein. I have, in my experience, not seen many natural substances produce the results that CBD is producing in the animals that we are testing on. It's a Dog's Life with Angela Ardolino, only on Cannabis Radio. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. About a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow. The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is him pink, that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh yeah? Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. It's time to Hemp Resent. I am going to titillate your audio orifices with weekly radio rendezvous with some of the premier movers, shakers, and history makers of the cannabis community. Radio resident Hempo Sapien Vivian McPeak. I will be putting out a call to action on the issues of the day and putting your interests under the big lights as I provide cannabis commentary and weekly interviews that go straight for the nugular. Marijuana! Hemp Resent, only on Cannabis Radio. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice, only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. And right before the break, I alluded to the fact that conferences, including our Northeast Cannabis Business Conference, um, they are in a state of limbo right now. We have rescheduled our spring and early summer conferences to take place later in the year. So the Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, which is NCIA's biggest and longest running conference, seventh year in a row this year, we've rescheduled that from June to September, September 29th, 30th, and October 1st. And you can find out more information about that at www.cannabisbusinesssummit.com. 
what is that going to look like in the future? Um, well, I'm trying to look into my crystal ball. I'm guessing social distancing, hand sanitizer, and we're probably not going to be shaking hands with people anymore. So start practicing your namaste or your live long and prosper or just an old fashioned wave, uh, whatever, whatever the new norm is. I think that's what conferences are going to look like. And of course, our lobby days has been rescheduled also uh, for mid-September. That was going to take place in May, and now it will take place September 15th, 16th, and 17th. NCIA members, which it is an exclusive event to go to lobby days for, you can find more information on NCIA's website, thecannabisindustry.org. And Blake, speaking also of conferences, we were in Boston in February, and we held that illicit market summit. Our director of public policy, Andrew Klein, has created this think tank around the illicit market, and he held a closed door uh, think tank session with law enforcement, regulators, formerly incarcerated individuals, license holders, lawyers, the whole nine yards. Um, so I wonder what your thoughts are there about the illicit market and, and how to do it the right way. Absolutely. I, I think every state that's legalized, you know, one of the arrows in their quiver of arguments to legalize is to completely stamp out the illicit market. Um, I think if that's the goal, states need to take a lot less in terms of taxes. Um, mm -hmm. It's a whole lot easier to call your guy and pay half the price for double equality. That industry is, you know, something I'm, I'm more familiar with because it's been a larger part of my cannabis consuming life. And, you know, sure. are there things I won't miss? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I will not miss, you know, the time I showed up at my guy's house and he got really mad at me. And I said, well, here's the text saying arrive at 8 p.m. And here I am at 8 p.m. I don't know why you're mad, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, a store will be open because it's ours. We'll say it's open. Um, but backing up a little bit, I think it's a little weird to listen too terribly much to law enforcement about how to stop the illicit market mm -hmm. because they have such a long track record of failure. You know, they had unlimited resources, unlimited budgets. And did they stamp out, you know, cannabis <laughs> consumption? No. So why are we listening to them? I don't know sure. if that's the goal. Sure. So I think part of getting rid of it will be, I'll be honest, you'll never get rid of it entirely, especially when, you know, states are, are stepping up to the plate and allowing home grow. Um, and of course there are limits about, you know, what you can and can't sell. People will sell a bag to their friends, you know, until the sun burns out. I'm sure of that. Sure. If you want to move away from, you know, Massachusetts has 75% of our cannabis market on the illicit side. If you want to get that to even, you know, parity 50, 50, the taxes have to go, go down. 100%. The, the compliance costs, especially surrounding security, which again is fueled by the false narrative that's been, you know, driven by federal propaganda saying that cannabis is, you know, as dangerous for the human body as, as heroin, which is ludicrous on its face. Uh -huh. Got law enforcement saying, oh yeah, it's a gateway drug. Well, science doesn't care what a cop says, you know? So I think there's an off-ramp to 
tamp down the percentage of the market that is in the illicit sphere. And that will come in a way that I think is not politically feasible because it means leaving dollars off the table and not listening to law enforcement as quote unquote experts on the topic. Because again, they're demonstrably bad at their job when prohibition was in force. Absolutely. Yeah. And I encourage our listeners to check out the um, key highlights so far that have come out of the illicit market summit. Uh, if you look in our policy council or industry reports section of NCIA's website, you can read a few highlights that have been taken away from that summit that include, uh, you know, finding ways for people from the illicit market to funnel into the regulated market. And you have to remove barriers in order for that to happen. Absolutely. All right. We have run out of time, but Blake, thanks for joining me. Where can our listeners find out more uh, about your work? Absolutely. Thank you. And my pleasure. Uh, I have a website, of course, uh, www.mensinggroup.com. Uh, I am on Instagram, which is not my native universe, although I'm technically a millennial. I didn't write my first hashtag until about two years ago. Uh, that's, that's mass underscore cannabis uh, underscore attorney. Subtle, I know, but that's uh, me on there. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I, I try to, you know, back when trade shows were a thing, I, I try to go to as many as I can. In particular, I want to give a huge plug for Lobby Days. That is a gold mine, a pressure cooker of networking opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's an obligation. If you're going to participate in this industry, you should work as hard as you can to try to get common sense, fact-driven policy change. So strongly recommend that was bummed it got canceled in May. I will do everything I can to be there in September. Totally worth your time. Worth, worth the price of admission 10 times out of 10. Absolutely. Lobby Days is my absolute favorite thing that NCIA does every year. It is just electrifying. So thank you for that shout out. And thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. Until next time. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.